Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Ron Gross, joined by Simon Erickson, James Early, and Jason Moser. Gentlemen, good to see you. Hey, Hello, Ron. Good to see you too, Ron. Chris and Steve are in San Diego at an investing conference for members of our Motley Fool One service. Joined by a lot of other fools, including Jeff Fisher, Matt Argusinger, and Morgan Housel. Chris will be back next week with all the scoop. On today's show, in honor of the Super Bowl, we'll talk about the business of football with ESPN's Andrew Brandt, and we'll talk about some not-so-super quarterly reports from LinkedIn and GoPro. But we begin with the big macro. The U.S. economy added 151,000 jobs in January, first in an expected gain of 190,000, but the unemployment rate, James did fall to 4.9%. So, how bad a miss is this? Is this something we should be concerned about? Uh, yes and no, or no no and yes. I mean, it's, it's, it's so, so good, it's bad, right? You got uh, that, Ron? You know, we've had China problems, we've had oil problems, we've had, you know, stock market has been just hell lately. I mean, J- January didn't have any IPOs. Not it's just fun. awful, right? Yeah. But, but unemployment, maybe it wasn't quite as good as people were expecting, but it's still at an eight-year low. Unemployment, Ron, for college graduates like yourself is at 2.5%. <laughs> and that's like the best like ever, or at least in, in, in many decades as far as I know. So and even, even wages of ordinary workers rose. Manufacturing was great. Construction was great. But for, from the investment perspective, what this really means is that the uh, – and this is why it could be bad – the odds of a, of a sooner Fed rate hike yeah. just went up. The Fed deliberated, and they're really, really nervous about the December rate hike. That was like the biggest deal ever. You know, we, we had years of anticipation of that rate hike. Sure. And should we do it? Should we not do it? And they did it. And now they're thinking, oh, ha, ha, we were justified. But, you know, the, twed, the Fed has twin mandates of price stability and full employment. So we're just a little bit closer to full employment, and it's going to give the Fed the confidence it needs to do a rate hike, which is going to actually hurt investors just a touch. But they can't stay low forever, right? Those rates, they, they've got to come up eventually. Why not? So. Why, well, I, I agree with you, but what is the actual argument? If they were to stay low forever? Um, that's a good question. We would end up with inflation, I would imagine. Good point. Okay. <laughs> I would like to just throw one thing, and actually two things. James, I, I also graduated college. I kind of feel like you shorted me there a little bit, just, just saying <laughs> that. Not just Ron, right? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I go Wofford, you know, Wofford Please. Terriers. Uh, it seems like every month we get these unemployment questions. And, you know, it's interesting to see sort of how decisions versus, you know, in regard to monetary policy may or may not be made, you know, in accordance with whatever these unemployment numbers may or may not show us. But I think that it lends itself to sort of that greater notion that really, when we talk about this stuff and we look back, you know, a couple of months later and we see these numbers have been revised, it's really difficult to sit there and try and make investing decisions based on headlines like these. I mean, it does seem like, you know, the financial media loves to get headlines out of this that will help sort of dictate the market's actions one way or another. Sure. But I think it is difficult to to actually pinpoint specific investing decisions you can make on, you know, this type of, of macro data. That's fair. LinkedIn's fourth quarter report looked good, but weak first quarter guidance sent shares plummeting. Jason, around $9 billion of market cap erased. Stock's at about $24 billion in market cap now. This is a hit we, we don't usually see. And now, I know a lot of fools own this stock, so today is not a fun day. But is there an overreaction here? I I don't know that there necessarily necessarily is an overreaction. I mean, this is a very severe reaction, no question there. And, and I think, as you mentioned, it wasn't like they turned in a bad quarter, 
But there are some signs here that this may not be quite the growth story that I think a lot of investors were hoping to see here in 2016, and, and that's why we're seeing the stock, uh, you know, taking such a hit. It's not that there's one particular problem here. It's sort of death by a thousand paper cuts, more or less. There are just issues all around the business. They're killing off this lead accelerator product, uh, which was a business-to-business ad platform and, and part of an acquisition that they made, a $175 million acquisition. So, so you have to at least kind of wonder you know, what were they thinking at that point. Uh, they are seeing some weakness on the talent solution side of the business, and, and that really is the big moneymaker. The, the higher margin online sales there are, are really – that is trending now. We're seeing more and more weakness there. And, and if we look at the company's deferred revenue, which is, is something, a subscription sort of a business, you want to see that kind of growing over time. It really has flattened out, indicating potential slow growth there as well. Uh, these estimates they have for this year now coming up around three dollars and twelve cents per share, significantly lower than what what Wall Street was expecting at around three ninety or something like that. That actually puts the stock around thirty seven, thirty eight times full year estimates now, mm-hmm. which is kind of reasonable. Uh, it tells us maybe the stock wasn't necessarily such a rational valuation before, so it's a very tough hit. I would not encourage uh, you know members uh, of of any foolish services or otherwise to just go back up the truck on these shares because they look cheap now. I think there are gen, you know there's some genuine growth concerns there, and, and and we don't really you know know how big that market opportunity really is. 2016 will will shed a lot more light on that. Yeah, Simon, we talk a lot about a company like Facebook, which was rich, richly valued as well, but continues to move higher and, and put up great numbers. LinkedIn, there's some parallels there, but they're diverged quite a bit from a stock perspective. When you see a high growth company take a hit like this, are, are you interested in, in jumping in? Definitely interested. Uh, LinkedIn obviously had a tough quarter and the market is showing that, but it's also got more members cumulatively now than the United States population. And you got to see a lot of growth that they're getting from international locations, one of which being China. And you got to think bigger picture. It's go big, go big or go home for businesses like this. If you want the biggest platform, you're going to have to put a lot of money behind it. LinkedIn continues to do that, and I still see the network effect in effect. Yeah, I think it's important for investors to note, this is not a broken business. It's not like this is a bad business, right? This is still a very good business. I think that just this, this was a valuation question, first yeah. and foremost. And I think that that's what this that's the impetus to this reaction and I, and I do believe that over time you know LinkedIn will continue to do well but but there are also some questions that they're going to need to address here in 2016 yeah and as fools we are business centric investors yeah. first business first stock second really so this is a widely held uh, motley fool recommendation that we'll we'll sure to, to keep an eye on and hear more about in the future yep. a strong quarter for alphabet the company formerly known as Google alphabet has now overtaken Apple as the world's most valuable company in terms of market cap. So, Simon, where does a company the size of Alphabet put up those growth? Where does the growth come from so the stock can continue to move higher? Well, Ron, I'm glad you asked, because Alphabet <laughs> has got a list of opportunities that runs from A to Z. Thank you. Wait unleash that one. They now have seven products that have over a billion users. Uh, Gmail just joined the ranks of Search. Android, Maps, Chrome, Play, and YouTube as billion-user products that Alphabet has in its arsenal. Uh, YouTube, let's call some attention to that one since you're asking about growth. The amount of time that was watched in 2015 on YouTube doubled over the previous year, and they're now reaching more 18 to 49-year-olds in the United States than any other cable network that exists. So definitely a great audience for advertising, which is going to be the continuing growth driver of Alphabet's core businesses. 
Now, when we're looking at growth drivers for the future, of course, Ruth Porat is uh, ruthlessly prioritizing the company. <laughs> oh, wow, you're on a roll. <laughs> and placing other bets on some really big opportunities, too. Uh, one of them that, that we look at in MDP is Google Fiber, yeah. which is offering 20 times faster internet than, than typical broadband internet service providers. And they're expanding their, their reach from three cities to nine cities this year. I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity. That's about a $92 billion market in the United States. Google's grabbing share really quickly there. So we talk about this race to a trillion with uh, Google um, and Apple at around five hundred billion or so. Is there enough business? Does it exist for Google to double from here? No matter how many years it takes to, to capture that that prize of the first company to one trillion. Uh, yes, absolutely, there is. You know, we talk about the law of large numbers a lot of times. Google's still phenomenally. I should say Alphabet is still growing twenty percent revenues year over year, which is phenomenal. And they're also decentralizing the organization enough that they can place big bets in things like Google Fiber, self-driving cars, markets that can support a much larger valuation than the company looks at right day. I, I think it's very possible, Ron. It's hard to make a prediction for a trillion-dollar company <laughs> it's like a big that. Number, yeah. But I like their bets. Sounds I good. think he could be an IR guy for yeah. Google or Alphabet. I mean, I'm going to go buy the company now. <laughs> Energy companies continue to struggle. Conoco cut its dividend by 66%. Exxon suspended its buyback program and will cut back its capital spending. So, James, as our dividend guy, do you like to see when a company cuts its dividend or or puts in place some capital preservation of programs, or or does that start to worry you? Well, Ron, in a way, what I like doesn't matter because these companies had no choice. <laughs> That's what I say. You know, they they really had no choice. They, they just hit the wall. Um, you know, Exxon borrowed money to pay to pay their dividend. Um, the, the bigger issue here is that they they kept professing they were going to pay their dividends. And, and what we're seeing now, well, let me back up. In two thousand and eight, before two thousand eight, banks hated to cut their dividends, and suddenly. One or two started cutting, then everybody started cutting. It was kind of like the new cool thing, right? <laughs> right, slippery slope. And now it's like it's considered okay to 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 go right down to the wire, professing that you're definitely going to maintain your dividend until like the next quarter, and suddenly you didn't. Like that's supposedly not supposed to be a big credibility ding. We've seen this in Income Investor, our our, our dividend newsletter here. Um, you know what, what's a Clint Eastwood line? I mean, their, their egos are writing checks. Some other body part cash, can't cash right? <laughs> right. Um, Philosophically, so that's that. Philosophically, though, this is just kind of reminds me. We, in the U.S., we're stuck on this idea that dividend has to be a fixed payment. The Europeans, I think, and South Americans have a better model, which is a dividend is a percentage of profits, and they and, drink more wine. <laughs> that's the, probably the more important point. Um, you know, it's, it's, that's a healthier model for the for the for the company, and that would avoid crisis moments like this. So if, if you're an investor and you have little or no energy exposure right now, are you, are you adding to your positions at this point? That, that's a big question. Warren Buffett is adding, I will say. Uh, I would be adding to energy. I would be. All right. Sounds good. Coming up, our earnings coverage continues and we'll share some stocks on our radar. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the show may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Ron Gross, joined by Simon Erickson, James Early, and Jason Moser. GoPro reported a disappointing fourth quarter and said it would discontinue some of its entry-level cameras. Jason... GoPro in trouble, or is this just one of kind of those growing pains that early stage companies find themselves in? I'd say it's more like go home at this point. <laughs> oh, um, <laughs> you know, I, I 
this is an interesting interesting business here that I, I really initially wanted to be optimistic. I thought they had sort of the really the, the, the brand identity in that niche market. Uh, but but really they have not been able to pivot to that media strategy as, as quickly as I think they thought they might be able to. And so what we've witnessed is a tremendous fall from grace here as these devices have just become so commoditized so quickly. And I mean, if you just look at the gross margin line for these guys, it's down 18 percentage points, more than 18 percentage points from the same quarter last year. So what they are witnessing is no pricing power. They're having to cut prices on cameras. They're cutting lines on better cameras that they're making because people aren't buying them. And so for for GoPro really to succeed here, I think it's going to be imperative that they continue to form relationships with other bigger companies out there, ways to get that content out there, ways to become more of a media company, like they listed in their S1 when they went public. And do those bigger companies end up acquiring GoPro two years down the road? It's it's certainly possible. I think uh, Google or Alphabet was was there. There's a lot of talk at CES this year about that, and, and I could see something like that happening because you, know, you look at something like Apple or Alphabet, and they are obviously big enough, and they can go beyond the device. They have the platform and sort of the the beyond the device aspect of the business that GoPro lacks today. Yahoo reported a 15% decline in revenue, and Simon, just to keep things nice and neat, um, announced a 15% layoff of their workforce. Story of 15. So, so here's my question, Simon. Is Yahoo and CEO Marissa Mayer, for that matter, in real trouble here? Where are we going? You know, Marissa Mayer had a, had a really tough job taking on the Yahoo CEO gig because she really had to transform that business. And as we know, it's very difficult to transform any business, especially one that's been in the internet tech space for the last 20 years. But I, I think that, that she had a good cause at the beginning. She wanted to focus on people, then products, then traffic, then revenue. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, none of that is really working out, Ron, very well for her at least. The company wrote down a $4.5 billion impairment charge to Goodwill this quarter, largely related to Tumblr and then their, their North American, South America operations. So they don't have the products in place. I do think that the, that the people is a little bit better than the media sometimes might portray. I think that actually people are happy to work at Yahoo. But the company's still getting only 25% of revenue from, from mobile. And you've seen companies like Facebook that are at 80% of, mobile, of revenue from mobile right now. Yahoo's user base still is that desktop legacy search. It hasn't made the jump, and it really hasn't transformed. All right. Sirius sold off a bit on declining profits for the quarter. Jason, they're spending a ton of money. Good move? I think it's uh, yeah. I mean, it's a good move. It's the move they have to make, but it's working out for them so far. They grew the top line nine percent for the year, and their subscription base, subscriber base, is down around thirty million. Uh, added two point three million subscribers in two thousand and fifteen. See around one point four, one point five million they can add in two thousand and sixteen. Uh, this is a business that's going to have to spend money to make money, right? I mean, that's their business. It's just basically figuring out a way to. to, to Distribute that that great content. Um, I think there was a lot of uncertainty eliminated when they just re-upped Howard Stern for a new five-year contract. Woo-hoo! And uh, you know, for me, like I, I, we're serious subscribers. I love it. I mean, yeah, I think you I know, I'm a big fan of the Howard Stern channels. Also, love the NFL access there. They they extended that agreement through 2022. I think that Howard Stern was a big reason why Sirius has been, has been able to succeed to this point. And so the question then becomes, what do they do once he retires? They were very shrewd to address this, I think, when they renewed Stern's contract. They got him for an additional five years. If he decides to retire at that point, that's okay, because Sirius XM will they'll maintain exclusive rights to all of his content yes. for an additional seven Smart years. Smart move. So they're going to build out a new app presence, something along the lines of Howard Stern 360 or something like that for the, for the diehard fans like us, uh, Ron. And, yeah. and I... 
as far as the stock goes, who knows? But I think these guys are doing the right things. All right, guys, it's Super Bowl weekend. The halftime entertainment show is Coldplay with Beyonce and other Super Bowl special guests. If you have to pick one special guest to add to the halftime show, we're going to go around the table. Someone who would make the show a strong buy. Who are you going with, Jason? Oh, well, I, I've always been a, a big uh just thumbs down on the music stuff during the Super Bowl. I hate it. Oh. So I would actually go the opposite direction. Mac's going to love this. I'd bring Amy Schumer in and just have her blow everybody's ears <laughs> off. Nice, James. Well, I'd be, this is an investment. I would I would bring in I'm actually two people. I would, Steve Broido and the guy, <laughs> the rent is too damn high. Remember that guy? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. That guy was And have good. them give commentary on, on the performance. But like for people watching at home, you would mostly hear the commentary, and the performance would be kind of the background. So you could just like <laughs> hear the psychology of the, the interaction between those two. That, to me, is more entertaining. Nice. Simon? Uh, my first choice was going to be James Early doing Kazuche. <laughs> <laughs> but if we couldn't get him, uh, I was actually going to vote for the left shark from Katy Perry's performance <laughs> oh, last nice. year. This is a phenomenon. It uh, totally went rogue during the dance. And... Um, Got to bring that, whoever that person is, still unknown, back for this year. All right, you're all wrong. Led Zeppelin reunion <laughs> is the right answer. All right, guys, it's uh, time for Stocks on Our Radar. We've just got a couple minutes. Jason, what do you got? Yeah, you know, I, I, I got to go with LKQ here. They're in the business of uh, aftermarket parts for automobiles, and I think it's just the insurance companies, the principle of indemnity. You're not going to get new parts on your car when it's wrecked. They're going to get aftermarket parts. That's what LKQ does. They do it really well. Uh, business continues to grow, and, and I tell you, my experience in the insurance business, I cannot believe how many car accidents we have in this country every single day. It's just a phenomenal number. James? When I read in the Wall Street Journal that Venezuela was flying in plane loads of new bills to, to keep up with inflation, I smiled because it's so bad it might actually be good news for Copa Airlines. This is a Panamanian airline that is down because of negative Venezuela exposure. I think Venezuela is getting so bad it may change soon. So that bodes well for Copa. CPA is CPA. the ticker. CPA. Simon, what do you got? Ron, I'm going with Facebook. Ticker FB. Excuse yeah, me. FB. Yeah. Uh, obviously, the world's largest social network, the thing that really caught my eye, operating margins popped from 32% of quarter ago to 44% this quarter. That's because they're getting not only more advertising impressions, but also richer content. So the price per ad is going up at the same time. That's great for a platform like Facebook. Do I get to be like the man behind the glass here? <laughs> I, I own Facebook. I don't own the other two. I'm going to go with what yes. I know, Facebook. <laughs> Guys, we still got another 30 seconds or so. want to go around the table. Favorite Super Bowl snack or, or food? Main course is acceptable as well. Jason. You know, Ron, I love cooking and I love making potato skins. The cheese, Mm. the bacon, the chives, the sour cream, tater skins. That's it. Now, James, I know this is going to be tough for you because I know you're healthy, you're organic. What do you got? I'm not really a snack guy. I mean, I'll eat like broccoli or, or carrots. <laughs> oh, or sometimes my gosh. The worst some, Super Bowl party ever. I'll put like, <laughs> some peanut butter on, on a cracker. Great. Simon? I'm going with jalapeno-flavored potato chips, Ron. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. Coming up, ESPN's Andrew Brandt talks about the future of football. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Broccoli. Broccoli. I really dig it, Steve. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Ron Gross sitting in for Chris Hill this week. Chris is out in San Diego at an investor conference for Motley Fool One members. He'll be back next week. It's Super Bowl weekend. Earlier in the week, Chris interviewed ESPN's Andrew Brandt, who has more than 25 years of experience in pro football. Brandt worked as an agent and later worked in the front office for the Green Bay Packers. He currently teaches sports law and sports business at Wharton and is the NFL business analyst for ESPN. We're going to get to the physical health 
of football in a moment. But, Andrew, let's start with the economic health of the game. And I'm no doctor, but but it does seem like things are could hardly be better for the NFL right now. And as the Super Bowl is getting ready to start, I, I keep going back to this moment a year ago. It was the day after the last Super Bowl. Les Moonves, the head of CBS, was on the set at CNBC, and he could not be happier because last year's Super Bowl, huge audience. CBS has the Super Bowl this year, and a year ago, he's saying on live TV, the bidding for a 30-second commercial is going to start at $5 million. Is it really that healthy? Because it certainly seems like it is. Yeah, Chris, this is this inexorable march to prosperity for the NFL. It's really hard to think what could knock it off this incredibly lofty perch where it's almost like NFL football is mainlined into our veins and we can't get rid of it. It's just so popular. Business is booming. And you and I have talked over the years of all the quote-unquote crises that they've faced in terms of Ray Rice, in terms of domestic violence. In terms of the issue we'll talk about with head injuries and safety and concussions, in terms of negativity around Roger Goodell and the deflate gate last year with Tom Brady and picking on football's golden boy, if you will, what what has all of that done? It's only increased popularity. It has become weekly where we read about, hear about record ratings, The networks are salivating to get more and more of this. We have a deal announced this week adding NBC to CBS for the Thursday night football lineup where the NFL owners have diabolically reduced the entertainment programming output from those two networks and replaced it with NFL football. And, oh, by the way, taken a $450 million from it in the process. So everything points north. We have franchise values all over a billion dollars. Some would say the most successful franchises are in the $3 billion range. You have a a team and owner and league-friendly collective bargaining agreement with the players. You have record ratings, so it does seem all pointing north. As you mentioned, one of the issues you and I have discussed is the concussion issue. And a lot of that evidence comes after players have retired, in some cases decades after they've retired. But news this week that Detroit Lions receiver Calvin Johnson, who is one of the NFL's marquee superstar players, wide receiver, he's reportedly going to retire. He's 30 years old. He's in the prime of his career. He's certainly made a lot of money over his career, and maybe he's taking good care of it. But if he does walk away from the game... Well, let me back up. What did you think when you first saw the news that Calvin Johnson was going to retire in the prime of his career? Well, the first thing before I got to any feelings about physical health and future was the money. And you started to mention it. This guy, because I cover the business of the NFL, there's very few players that have tilted the leverage their way where I could say they, quote-unquote, won the business of football because usually the teams win. This guy won. (laughs) <laughs> because in the old rookie way of doing contracts, he was one of those bloated deals at the top of the draft. So he got a market-setting deal not once but twice, once when he came out of college and then when he was a veteran renegotiated contracts. So I calculated this, Chris. He has made, in nine years, 
$115 million. That's gross. Now, we don't know how he's handled his money, but I thought about, okay, you know, at age 30 or whatever he is, $115 million, he's good. You know, he's good to go. He is well set up for the future. Then I thought about, okay, maybe there's more to this, because maybe in combination with having that kind of money, that kind of net wealth going forward, he can now say, I'm not going to risk it. I'm not going to risk my everything below my head, but maybe even more importantly, my head on what could happen to head trauma over the years and just hang it up. If it does turn out that this is why he's walking away, because of his health. Again, this is a guy in the prime of his career. He's not at the tail end. Right. And at some point, we'll we'll talk about at least one player who is in the sunset of his career. But I don't know, Andrew. Uh, even with that amount of money, I'm still a little surprised. And to me, if I were the NFL, I'd just be the tiniest bit more worried today than I was, say, last week. Because if this guy's going to do it, and there start to be more questions raised from players about their health and how teams are handling their health, and it seems like there are, that could be something that works against the economic health of the league. Yeah, this is interesting, because a couple of these happened a year ago. One was a stark reminder of everything you're saying. We had a linebacker who was poised to make what I think is, I don't know, $15, $20 million contract, and he walked away. After one year, San Francisco 49er Chris Borland did a lot of research, had a concussion during training camp, was told it was dinged, and it lasted all year. He did a lot of research, and he decided to walk away. That was a moment, and that was about a year ago. We had a 30-year-old linebacker, all same age as Johnson, on the same team, 49ers, same team as Borland, walked away. We had a quarterback last year, played four years in the league, named Jake Locker, walked away. So the question becomes, as you mentioned, are these going to be isolated outliers, or is this start of a trend? If it's anything near the latter, that is a real concern for the NFL, people walking away. I used the term last year, and I'll use it if it's the case with Johnson, and we don't know, preemptive retirement. How many times have we seen that? Not very often in this sport. Usually, and I've been on both sides of this, I've been an agent, I've been a team executive, players are quote-unquote retired. They don't do it willfully. They are told to leave, and that's 99% of the cases. Now we may have some preemptive retirements, and like you said, not at the end of the career, but in the middle. Calvin Johnson was in no danger of having his career cut short by the team in the next few years, but here we are. Could it be another preemptive retirement? The Associated Press did a survey of 100 current NFL players. The results came out this week, and 53% of them said they don't believe team doctors have their best interests in mind when it comes to injuries. When you and I talked a couple of years ago, one of the things you had said was that current players, more than anyone, more than agents, more than executives, current players were objecting to what you referred to as, quote, the sissification of football. We've seen rule changes put in place over time to protect players. But when you think about results of a survey like this, do you think that that mindset among current players is starting to change? I do. And that's actually something the NFL would be proud of. I mean, they just released their report of showing more concussions and actually are 
don't know if the right word's proud, but are okay saying, yes, we have more concussions because it's showing more reported concussions and less hiding and people staying out longer and people not so much scared to report a concussion for, for fear that they'd never play again, they'd be replaced. I do think this culture change is, is anecdotal. It's hard to say on, on a major macro scale that players are not hiding concussions anymore, not intentionally failing baseline tests, so they're not uh, placed on the bench when they're concussed. But there's anecdotal evidence that players are, A, reporting more, and B, staying out longer. You just don't know what the total incremental impact of all these subconcussive hits is. We just don't know. That's the frustrating part. You can't say that you play football and this will happen to you in 10 years. But there are players doing more research. There are players sitting out more. So we do have the start, maybe the genesis of this culture change we're talking about. As you've said, you've been on both sides of this equation. You've been an agent for players. You've worked in the front office at the Green Bay Packers. You've consulted with the Philadelphia Eagles. Contracts in the NFL aren't guaranteed like they are in Major League Baseball or the NBA. Do you think we're going to start to see some sort of slow amount of change where owners will have to guarantee contracts as players become more aware of health risks? It certainly would help everything they're talking about because I think owners can talk out of both sides of their mouth. They want this reporting. They want this culture change. But they need to incentivize players to do it. In other words, you don't want players, and I'm not talking about superstars. I'm talking about your average down-the-line player. You don't want them thinking, hey, I tell them about the concussion. I'm on the bench. Someone replaces me. I'll never get my job back. You know, I always point out this example of a couple years ago, a quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers, Alex Smith. One of the better players in the league at that time had a concussion, did exactly what we want him to do, sat out weeks. A guy named Kaepernick came in, was dynamic, played this incredible style of game. Alex Smith never played another down for the 49ers. Now, he ended up in a good place with Andy Reid with the Kansas City Chiefs, but players noted that and still do. I talk to players, they go, man, if that can happen to Alex Smith, Starting quarterback for the 49ers, it can happen to me. So that's a long-winded way of getting back to what owners need to realize, that if players had guarantees, if players had security in their contracts, they would report more. They wouldn't worry about being replaced so much. And then it gets down to this negotiation issue. Teams don't want to guarantee because players do get injured. They don't want to pay injured players. I'm not just talking about head injuries. I'm talking about all over their body. So I, I guess, you know, this is a little in the weeds, but if I'm an agent and a team says we'll give you, you know, $50 million contract with $20 million guaranteed, most usually the way they structure those is that $20 million is all paid off in the first two years. If they won't guarantee more, what I would say is, all right, that five-year $50 million contract, $20 million guaranteed, just give me $4 million guaranteed every year. That way, there's some semblance of security beyond the first couple of years. I think that's one way to make inroads on these contracts. Coming up, Chris talks with Andrew Brandt about daily fantasy sports and betting on football. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Are 
Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Ron Gross. Let's get back to Chris's conversation with Andrew Brandt, NFL business analyst for ESPN. Over this most recent NFL season, there were some other issues on the economic side of the equation that that, uh, made it into the headlines. And let's start with fantasy football. I watch the stock market all week, every week, and so I'm no stranger to stocks that shoot to the moon and then come crashing back down to earth. I'd be hard-pressed to see an entire industry shoot to the moon and crash back down the way daily fantasy sports has in the last, not even the last year, just the last, I would say, eight months or so. Where is this going? Because right now it looks like a lot of states are going to court to sue the likes of DraftKings and FanDuel and others. You mentioned those two companies, and we'll focus on them. They have become part of the lexicon of not only NFL, but baseball, basketball, and hockey because they offer fans a chance to have this engagement on a nightly basis, and football, of course, a weekly basis. And it's not your father's fantasy. It's not sitting around with friends and family in August and drafting a team and realizing how you did in December and January. It's weekly and, in some cases, daily. The barrage of advertising from these companies was incredible. They achieve extraordinary mind share, market share by doing that. They're both valued over a billion dollars. And more importantly, they have investment from Major League Baseball with DraftKings, from the NBA with FanDuel. The NFL has not had an equity stake in either company, but 28 of the 32 teams have sponsorship deals. The NFLPA has a sponsorship deal. And two of the NFL owners, Robert Kraft of New England and Jerry Jones of Dallas, are investors' equity stakes in DraftKings. You couple that with what New York and other states are doing now, which is basically saying this is gambling. We're shutting it down, or we're trying to. And maybe their goal, cynically, is to just get a piece of it, be be a regulator, get involved with it, regulating gambling in the way they want to do it with some financial interest. But at the end of the day, this is going to bubble up for the NFL to realize, what are we doing here? We're taking all this money from these two companies, that the New York Attorney General and others have called, quote-unquote, gambling. And everything we stand for is to stay away from gambling. So I just think this is going to reach ahead, where either Roger Goodell has to tell these two owners to divest, or somehow the sponsorship deals will run out and they don't get involved with it. Because the monetization angle is great, but again, this is gambling. What are they going to do about that? This past season, we saw, for the first time, an NFL game get streamed online. It was not on the television network. Yahoo streamed uh, Buffalo versus Jacksonville in Yahoo. Say what you want about that game not necessarily being in the highest demand, not necessarily a marquee matchup, but it did start to get both people on the business side and fans in general starting to think about streaming-only football games. Uh, How far off in the future do you think it's going to be before someone, it could be Google, it could be some other big tech company, but someone with deep pockets comes in and says, we're going to compete with the television networks and we're going to make a serious bid to have a bunch of games just on our online or streaming platform? 
I think that's coming, but I think we're going to talk about baby steps because, as I mentioned at the start of our interview, we're talking about Thursday night packages now with CBS and NBC, just Thursday night, but there was a little notation in that press release that caught my eye. Separate rights are being sold for OTT over-the-top streaming, and I would expect that would be with a tech company, whether it's a Google or Yahoo or Netflix or Apple, etc., now, like you, like you mentioned, that would not take the place of the over-the-air uh, networks, but it's coming because now we're sort of introducing the second screen OTT delivery, and they're selling rights for that. Of course, these NFL owners never miss a revenue opportunity, but is it going to be that only? They allowed it last year with this one Yahoo game. It was a, not a game that people would be interested in nationally. It was Jaguars versus Bills. I think it did fine. I think they got $20 million from Yahoo to do it. Uh, we'll see if that continues. But listen, you, Google's got however many billions sitting around. They look at ESPN and CBS and NBC paying $1 to $2 billion for rights. They probably think they got that in their couch cushions. They probably do. So they could figure out a way to do it. I just don't know if the NFL will ever allow that to not be on broadcast television. We're going to wrap up with a round of buy, sell, or hold. Let's start with someone who has had problems both on and off the field, and his stock is probably trading at an all-time low right now. Buy, sell, or hold Cleveland Browns quarterback Johnny Manziel. Sell, to me, culture counts, and he's an undisciplined guy, not only on the field but off the field. That guy's not changing. This is a branding issue that hasn't really been in the headlines too much recently. Buy, sell, or hold the Washington Redskins changing their name. Tough one for me. Grew up there a long time, never associated it with anything that untoward, and I'm going to hold right there. He's playing in this weekend's Super Bowl, but his skills have diminished over time. Buy, sell, or hold Peyton Manning playing next season. I'm going to sell that. I think he's gone, whether win or lose, and he will ride off into the sunset, perhaps with a Super Bowl ring in his hand, a second one, or perhaps not. But either way, I think he's moving on. And finally, this musical act was a bit of a surprise choice. Buy, sell, or hold this year's Super Bowl halftime entertainment, Coldplay. And I should mention that reportedly Beyonce will be joining Coldplay during the halftime show. That's a big buy for me, two of my favorites. (laughs) I will be uh, enthralled and engrossed with those two acts. I'm very high on that. Andrew, thank you so much for your time. Enjoyed it. Thank you. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. And a reminder to check out our new podcast center. Go to fool.com slash podcasts for past episodes of Motley Fool Money, as well as our four other podcasts. That's fool.com slash podcasts. Our show is produced by Matt Greer. Handling the engineering and editing duties this week is Rick Engdahl. I'm Ron Gross, sitting in for Chris Hill this week. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.